Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Susan Bright, Managing Partner for the UK and Africa at Hogan Lovells and leader of our Brexit Task Force. So this is the latest webinar in our Brexit series, Navigating the Negotiations. Last month, after the summer, we looked at whether the autumn could bring a uniform approach to Brexit. And today, we're going to see where we currently stand and hear from some of my colleagues in the in various EU 27 countries. And they're going to be providing insights on how governments and industry are preparing in their jurisdiction for whatever happens next. So today we're going to cover um, the current reality of Brexit, where do things now stand, and then we're going to turn to a view from various countries within the EU, including from Brussels. And finally, we'll have an insight um, from our data protection team. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by a number of my colleagues, first of all by Andrew Eaton, who's in our public law and policy team, by Tim Brandy, who's a corporate partner in our Frankfurt office, Hein van den Bos, who's a partner specialising in life sciences, who's based in our Amsterdam office, Sebastian Groh, who's a partner in our Paris office and leads our corporate financial institutions practice, Jeff Greenbaum, who's a partner in our Rome office, who is a specialist in financial regulation, and Christopher Thomas, who's a partner in our competition antitrust practice based in Brussels. And finally, last but not least, uh, Hannah Jackson, who is in our privacy and cybersecurity team. So for those of you who joined us last month, um, we were uh, joined by one of my colleagues from our Brussels office, Ambassador Hugo Payman. Uh, and as a reminder, Hugo has been a senior statesman in the Brussels and Washington trade community for the last for decades, um, and Hugo was the EU chief negotiator during the Uruguay round, which led to the creation of the WTO, and later he was the head representative of the EU to the United States, and he shared some interesting points at that stage from a European perspective, and just to summarize and to set the scene for today, uh, he said the following key points. He recognised that um, when you're in the UK, uh, facing UK politics, Brexit is, is really a dominating presence. It's something that we read about and hear about just all of the time. And he contrasted that with the fact that there is much less noise from the European side on the state of the negotiations and the possibility of a deal. And Hugo uh, told us that there had been, in fact, a decreasing level of attention and concern, in his view, at a European political level, uh, partly, he said, because of Brexit fatigue, and partly because the key players have confidence in Monsieur Barnier to lead the negotiations and were turning their attention to other really important issues uh, in particular countries, such as migration, Eastern Europe, and, of course, domestic politics. He also spoke about the dynamics of the negotiations and the feeling that in Europe um, the neg Brexit negotiations were rather an exercise in procrastination. He said that uh, people were perhaps focusing on what would happen at the end of the uh, two-year nego negotiation period um, when there will be a sort of balancing act between the different issues and in a sense nothing is agreed until everything's agreed right at the end. But he said in his view um, that was not going to be the solution for such um, a really complex negotiation like Brexit. 
He also spoke about the really important role that the business community can play in negotiations of this sort. And he shared how in his former roles, he has really welcomed business input on past negotiations. Um, and he noted with regret that some captains of industry seem to have become more reluctant to engage in that statesmanlike activity where they take part in and advise um, governments. And he was encouraging uh, business to, very much to do that. It was Hugo's view that despite um, the fact that there's less noise from the European side, there was indeed a willingness, indeed a keenness to reach a deal, and that certainly back last month when he was speaking, he felt the atmosphere had improved in terms of making that extra effort to, to get a deal across the line. So with that in the background and building on that, we're now going to hear from Andrew um, in the last few weeks. Uh, where are we now, Andrew? Uh, and then we'll move on to our colleagues from other countries. So, Andrew, over to you. Thanks, Susan. The Brexit negotiations behind schedule. At the outset of Article 50, uh, the Article 50 process, Michel Barnier said that the UK and the EU would need to agree a deal by October in order for both sides to have enough time to ratify it before March 2019. That deadline was always likely to slip, but the fact that it has is still a sign that the Article 50 negotiations are in the final phase. Theresa May said in the House of Commons earlier this week, that the withdrawal agreement is 95% agreed. As she put it, the only considerable sticking point remaining is the Irish backstop. We've spoken in detail about the Irish backstop on earlier webinars. The current position, in summary, is as follows. Both the UK and the EU agree that they need to find a solution that ensures no border will be introduced between Northern Ireland and the Republican Ireland. The hope is that the eventual future relationship between the UK and the EU will include a long-term guarantee of no border. Negotiations on that future relationship will not start until the UK has left the EU. However, if the future relationship is agreed before the end of the transitional period under the withdrawal agreement, there will be no need for a backstop. The backstop, therefore, concerns what should happen at the border if the UK reaches the end of the transitional period in December 2020 and no long-term agreement has been reached. The EU has said it will not agree a withdrawal agreement that leaves this question open. In March this year, the EU proposed if no long-term agreement is reached by the end of the transition, Northern Ireland should stay in the single market and the customs union. The UK has rejected this because it would result in a border being imposed between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, something Theresa May maintains no UK Prime Minister could ever sign up to. The UK proposed various alternatives all of which had already been rejected by the EU when the Salzburg summit focused the minds of political leaders on this issue. The UK subsequently proposed a UK-wide backstop whereby the UK would remain in a customs union with the EU until a future relationship is agreed and a long-term solution found. However, the EU still has two issues with this solution. First, the UK insists that the UK-wide backstop must be time-limited or provide a mechanism by which the UK could leave the arrangement, because otherwise this would lock the UK in a customs union with the EU indefinitely, thereby precluding it from negotiating free trade deals with other countries. The EU says it cannot accept this. Second, the EU believes there is not enough time to negotiate all the details of a UK-wide backstop before March 2019, and so is insisting on the Northern Ireland-only solution in addition to be included in the withdrawal agreement as a backstop to the backstop. 
and so the parties remain at an impasse. The UK government maintains it will not accept any Irish backstop solution that either locks the UK in a customs union with the EU indefinitely or that splits up the UK's customs territory. The EU27 also seems unlikely to back down. This is not least because they do not know for certain with whom they will be negotiating on behalf of the UK once it has left in March 2019, and so will want to tie the UK down to legally binding commitments on the, on the Irish border problem before it leaves. To break the deadlock, the negotiating teams are currently seeking to find a way of making the backstop time-limited while also providing sufficient certainty that no border will ever be introduced. Theresa May's latest suggestion, much to the consternation of hardline Brexiteers in her party, is an option to extend the transitional period until mid-2022, which would push back the date on which any backstop would need to kick in. But this only avoids, rather than resolves, the tension between the parties' respective positions. Both parties still maintain they are confident a deal can be reached. Realistically, they have until the next European summit in December. Leaving it any later risks any deal not being implemented in time. This brings us to the next pressure point, the meaningful vote. Any deal cannot be ratified by the UK unless and until the House of Commons has voted in favour and passed an Act of Parliament implementing it into UK law. At present, there does not appear to be a majority in Parliament for any kind of Brexit, with the DUP, the Labour Party and a significant number of Conservative MPs saying they will vote against the government's proposed deal. Whether they will follow through with this threat at the crunch remains to be seen, but what happens if they do? Under Section 13 of the EU Withdrawal Act, if the House of Commons votes down the deal, the government has 21 days to present a way forward. Similarly, if no deal is reached before late January, the government must make a statement in Parliament saying what it proposes to do next. In both cases, if the government's plan for how to proceed is rejected by the Commons, we are in general election or second referendum territory. If it gets to that, it is highly unlikely either of these could be held in time without an extension to the Article 50 period. Without an extension, this could mean the UK crashing out with no deal before a general election or a referendum is held. All of this would suggest that a no-deal Brexit is a material possibility. However, the UK government's preparations for a no-deal are also behind schedule, with only 71 of the expected 800 to 1,000 SIs having been published so far, given, uh, despite the fact that about 50% of the time to produce them has already elapsed, and with only a mere two SIs having passed through Parliament so far. Whereas the government's no-deal preparations to date have largely consisted of technical papers outlining what they would need to do in the event of a no-deal, reports coming out of Whitehall this week suggest the Brexit department will soon be shifting its approach from warning businesses about the possible implications of no-deal to issuing direct instructions about what to do. This is perhaps indicative that in the absence of a deal, we will soon reach the point where governments on both sides of the channel will need to stop just talking about what they would do in the event of no deal and start putting those plans in action. In this context, while it is tempting to continue to believe that it will all be all right on the night, it is more vital than ever that businesses are ready for all eventualities and that they understand and engage with the actions of public authorities, not just in the UK, but across the EU, uh, will, that, the, that they will soon need to take action to mitigate the impact of a no deal Brexit. 
Andrew, thank you very much. We're now going to hear from colleagues in the various EU 27 countries. And the question to each of you is, how is your government and industry preparing for a no-deal scenario, which, as Andrew's just said, um, seems uh, a more likely possibility at this stage than perhaps at any other earlier stage in the negotiations, um, including the domestic measures being taken and, and also how people are providing input to the European Commission and to the Council. So first, um, can we go to Tim Brandy in our Frankfurt office for the German view? Tim. Well, thank you, Susan. Um, a warm welcome to our listeners also from my end. As far as Germany is concerned, there are several pieces of smaller legislation on its way dealing with Brexit generally, that area of tax and corporate law and other areas. Um, there are also press reports about a specific no-deal um, legislation that's uh, being discussed at our government. Uh, but no specifics have leaked yet. So unfortunately, I'm not able yet to report any details on that no-deal legislation. But it seems to be uh, in this working. The German industry is quite heavily lobbying uh, to the German government and the European institutions to avoid a no-deal scenario. Uh, we as a firm are also involved in this partly in Germany because we participate in the Brexit Task Force of the uh, Deutsche Aktien Institute, which is the German um, lobbying organizations and think tank for German stock-listed companies. And they produce regularly um, position papers on this, and the most recent one that has been published a few weeks ago very strongly, again, argues against the no-deal scenario and has been widely distributed among German and European politics. These industry organizations and other industry organizations also publish checklists for their constituencies to prepare themselves for a no-deal scenario. And even the German financial regulator, BaFin, has apparently recently actively reached out to the industry um, organizations to ask them whether they can tell the German regulator what to do and where the things are difficult in light of a potential no-deal scenario. As far as the level of preparedness of the German industry as such is concerned, um, the situation is mixed. Um, as far as we can tell, large enterprises are generally quite well prepared. Evidently, they have the necessary resources to prepare themselves and keep up to breast of all developments and what needs to be done. And they also actively participate in the various industry bodies. Medium and small enterprises are much less prepared. And a recent poll has showing that many of them have really not taken any steps at all yet to take make preparations for a no-deal scenario. One example of a big uh, German industrial player that would be heavily affected by, um, by, a, by Brexit in general, and particularly by a no-deal scenario, uh, is BMW that has been widely published in the press, not only in Germany, but also abroad. As you know, BMW has several factories in the UK, um, Rolls-Royce and Mini. And uh, a very yeah, striking example is that, for example, engine components for the Mini have to cross the channel four times in the production process until final assembly in the UK. So if there are customs um, um, imposed at, at both sides of the channel, evidently that will severely slow down this process. 
And there have been reports that BMW is planning for a one-month production pause in as many, many production sites in the UK and just after Brexit in order to uh, take uh, to, to deal with this slowdown that will evidently happen. Well, finally, I would also like to end on a more positive note. Um, interestingly enough, the Brexit and the Brexit preparations have sort of proved to be a fountain of youth, you may say, for the German financial regulator. It has been known in the past to be very strict, very rigorous, very German, if you want to say so. But now, uh, since it is faced with competition uh, with other European regulators, financial regulators, all vying for the uh, financial industry coming to continental Europe, it has completely changed its approach. It has become much more proactive and cooperative. You can approach them in English, you can submit documents in English, you can have meetings in English. And everything seems to be much smoother than it has been in the past. So this shows that Brexit um, can, be, can have a positive impact and can bring competitors to um, competition to the public authorities. Well, that's from Germany. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Uh, as a competition lawyer, I, I should be pleased to hear that, I suppose. Um, uh, moving on now, can I ask um, Hein to, to share his perspective from the Netherlands? Hein, over to you. Thank you, Susan. Yes, so I, I wanted to start with the Netherlands' general view on Brexit. Um, and as many of you will know, the Netherlands has um, and has had for a lot of, long time close economic ties. The Netherlands is the third largest importer into the UK and the fifth largest export destination from the UK. Um, that means that both government in the Netherlands and business in the Netherlands um, are preparing to be relatively heavily affected and are also both generally quite unhappy with Brexit. Yesterday, during a formal state visit of the Dutch King and Queen to the UK, the Dutch King said that it truly saddens us to see Britain leave the EU, that Brexit leaves a shadow of uncertainty for Dutch living in the UK, but also that Brexit does not mean farewell. And historically in the European Union, the Netherlands has been very much in favor of the UK being a member of the EU and has always looked to the UK as a partner in, you know, in, in EU politics and in negotiating with the other member states being Atlantic-oriented, very trade-oriented. Now, however, the Netherlands stresses the importance of unity among the remaining EU27, and the Netherlands is actively looking for new allies, new partners within the EU to replace its old buddy, UK. So what's the government in the Netherlands doing in terms of contingency planning for no-deal Brexit? Um, in my personal view, not that much. Um, but what it is doing is really warning business and citizens that they should prepare and that it is their own responsibility to be prepared. The Dutch government has announced the intention to draft legislation in preparation of the UK, UK leaving. Um, and in that draft legislation, which is still to be published, um, there would be a sort of emergency clause allowing the government to um, enact legislation outside of Parliament in case of emergency um, for unforeseen and unacceptable consequences in a no-deal scenario. What the government has been doing is hiring new people. Um, 
particularly the Dutch Customs Authority um, is set to hire more than 900 FTEs, 300 of which should be employed by March 2019. Also, the Food and Consumer Product Safety Authority, the NVWA, is hiring 143 FTEs, most importantly veterinarians, to do import and export control on um, food. Then, what's business doing in the Netherlands? Um, the Dutch General Employers Association, VNO-NCW, takes the view that a no-deal scenario is now a serious possibility and it recommends business take preparatory action. Also last week, the Dutch Chamber of Commerce published a report that um, a lot of uncertainty remains for business and that business, especially small and mid-sized business, is um, not really prepared. Um, and it recommends preparing for what it calls the worst-case scenario. Then I wanted to make a few comments on the life sciences sector specifically. Um, the European Medicines Agency, which is the EU agency responsible for assessing new marketing authorizations for medicinal products, both for human use and veterinary use, is currently located in London. As it's an EU agency, it will have to relocate after Brexit, and it has been decided that it will move to Amsterdam. Almost our new neighbor in, in next to our Amsterdam office, by the way. Um, that um, has also prompted the Dutch local authority, the Dutch Medicines Evaluation Board, to expand its capacity to take over the UK part in the EU Medicines Regulatory Framework, as it calls it. I think it won't be the entire UK part, but at least um, a large extent, um, large part of what the UK MHRA currently does in that framework. On the sort of practical and business side, what we see happen in practice is that because of EMA moving to Amsterdam and also because the EU pharmaceutical regulatory framework requires that certain activities with medicinal products take place within the EU, we see that several companies are shifting some activities, not all, some activities from the UK to other EU member states, notably Ireland and the Netherlands, um, we think the Netherlands is um, sometimes chosen because of EMA moving. And just to give you three examples, um, we see marketing authorizations being transferred from UK entities to Dutch affiliates. We see new legal entities being set up in the Netherlands in order to be able to hold marketing authorizations and carrying out other activities. And finally, we see certain manufacturing activities being set up or transferred to the Netherlands. Those were my comments. Thank you, Susan. Thank you very much, Hein. Um, so now we'll move from the Netherlands to France. Um, Sebastian, would you like to share your views? Sure. Thanks, uh, Susan, and welcome, everybody. Uh, before, before talking about the contingency plans in France and what local government is implementing, I just want to step back a bit and uh, give you um, a summary of how actually Brexit was uh, was looked at uh, immediately after the Brexit vote, and it is actually the positive note that uh, that uh, Tim mentioned a moment ago, uh, specifically in relation to the financial regulators. So immediately after the Brexit vote, the financial regulators, so the French uh, uh, banking and insurance regulator and the Financial Markets Authority, published a press release 
indicating that they would be very welcoming and that uh, anybody who wants to re-domicile to France uh, can do so by submitting a short track uh, application uh, in English, that there will be people within the regulator, English native speakers, uh, who will look at this. So it was very, uh, very welcoming from the beginning. And our experience when we had the uh, discussions with the regulator showed that this is not just a, a death letter, that indeed, uh, they are uh, welcoming people, they uh, are uh, ready to talk, they are pragmatic, uh, and um, it, it really changes compared to the uh, stance uh, the French regulator took uh, previously. At the same time, it clearly transpires that uh, the regulatory authorities apply uh, exactly what the guidelines and the opinions of the European uh, banking supervisors or the insurance supervisors uh, indicate. So they are pragmatic, but at the same time, they have uh, a unified position, uh, and, and it's the position that is set out in the European opinions. Um, when talking about uh, the contingency planning, and there is indeed a contingent, no deal contingency planning in France, there is a draft bill that has uh, been proposed by the French government to the French parliament under which the uh, French government would be authorized to adopt um, no-deal uh, contingency measures by means of ordinance. What does that mean? It simply means that this is a, a fast-track procedure uh, and uh, that there's no parliamentary debate. So this is really an, a law empowering the French government to take no-deal uh, contingency measures it is really a short, uh, a short draft bill, which basically focuses on a couple of issues. It's uh, principally in relation to the situation of UK citizens in France. It's in relation to control of goods and persons transiting between France and the UK. And it's the preservation of French national interests. So the law is very brief and indicates that uh, the government may take contingency measures by means of ordinance in relation to these subject matters. It doesn't give any detail on how these uh, issues will be dealt with. And here's also a question mark on actually what the French local government has competency on, and its principle only uh, has competency in relation to French-related issues, which are not of the competency of uh, Europe. In relation to the preservation of French national interest, this is a very large concept. Uh, I think that basically means that they will have special uh, provisions in the French in the French laws, which uh, regulate on how existing contracts will, post Brexit, be continued to be executed. And this is, uh, in terms of uh, concerns about Brexit, I feel uh, from the discussions we're with clients and with the regulators that this is really at the heart of the concerns of all uh, market players is how contracts which have been concluded validly prior to Brexit with the necessary authorizations will continue post-Brexit. And this is really a, an issue that uh, people are very feeling very, very, very uh, uh, strongly about because it has obviously a huge, uh, a huge impact. And in relation to insurance, this is specifically an issue because EUPAS, so the, the uh, European 
insurance regulator indicated that post-Brexit even paying out benefits or servicing, continue to service and administer an insurance policy would be considered as an insurance activity and would require local authorization. As I said, con a contract continuity is really a major issue and uh, there was a hearing last week uh, on the draft bill uh, at the Senate and this is one of the issues that has been really uh, discussed and uh, where market players are really aiming at allowing for contract continuity post-Brexit. As I said, this is really at the heart uh, of the discussion. And there is obviously lobbying at this uh, hearing. There were a number of uh, authorities, there were market players involved. They were uh, interviewed and there was additions around what the concerns uh, both UK market players, but also French market players and authorities consider to be the most important ones to be dealt with. And this actually will then go into the draft, uh, into the, the bill that will then be adopted by the government uh, to uh, address these issues. In terms of preparedness of the market players, I think it pretty much echoes what um, Tim mentioned for Germany. Large institutions are, are in the course of, of uh, preparing the worst case scenario. And uh, this is actually because uh, regulators and authorities locally always said from the outset that the preparations need to be such uh, that uh, uh, that we would face a no-deal scenario. So we had to prepare on the basis that the worst case would actually happen. Um, and this is really uh, uh, in relation to large institutions, smaller institutions or mid-level institutions, I think are far behind of what uh, uh, they should do in terms of a no-deal uh, uh, um, contingency planning. But uh, this is still going on. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, they, they, they are continuing preparing that and um, it will also very much depend actually on what the UK legislation will look like for French institutions having business in the UK on how this will be dealt with. But obviously in relation to the UK clients we have and we have uh, been helping with in relation to Brexit, they are uh, preparing for the worst case and had a number of meetings with the local government uh, authorities, with the regulators and are, are, are setting up a, a, a contingency plan which would allow them to do business after Brexit. At the same time, I think time is running, and I'm not sure that actually everything will be ready for the 29th of March. Uh, so, um, yeah, we'll see. That That's the part uh, from uh, France. Sebastian, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're now going to move south. To Italy um, and ask Jeff to share his insights from from Italy. Jeff, over to you. Well, thank you, Susan. It's always fun talking at these seminars after the very diligent German, Dutch, and French have spoken. Sort of puts us in a difficult position here. So the two factors really driving the position of the Italian regulators towards Brexit. The first factor was just the uh, objective factor of trade with the UK. Italy has roughly one quarter of the trade uh, with the UK that Germany has and half of the trade of the Netherlands um, and France. And in fact, the former uh, foreign minister and prime minister of Italy went so far as to say publicly, look, to us uh, really going forward, it's more important that we iron out the trade issues with Switzerland than the UK. 
So for Italy, it, it was not a major issue under the foreign, former government from a trade perspective. The other perspective is the perceived ability of the local financial center to be a, an attractive destination for financial institutions fleeing from, from London. Now, as a financial lawyer, you know, every problem I look at, uh, the only tool I have is a hammer. Everything look, every problem looks like a nail. I think of Milan as a great financial center, but that's not really um, something which can compete with, with Paris, Germany, and Amsterdam. And in fact, not even the Italian government felt that way. They didn't even pro, uh, 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 put Milan forward on uh, the list of proposed sites for the relocation of the European Banking Authority. So we don't have trade forcing a dominant aggressive position on behalf of Italy, nor do we have the idea to uh, steal business away from London. So putting these things together, Italy uh, adopted a position of benign neutrality. So uh, one evidence of this is when the city of London went to see um, the various national regulators in Italy, the chief discussions were um, actually centered around Ireland rather than any specific issues between Italy and, and the UK. So also having said this, we've heard about how Brexit and Tim's word has become a fountain of youth for the German, for Boffin and, and Sebastian has talked about how it's affected the French regulator um, I approached the Italian Treasury last year to do something similar. Their response was, that's something small countries do. We will not stoop to that. So Italy has not had a significant change in the approach of its regulators. So we just, as many of you know, we've had a change of government in Italy recently, and they've had a number of challenges on their table, including the budget debate they're having with Europe right now. Uh, and so Brexit has slipped even further down the table of what's important to Italy. So in a nutshell, I guess Italy looks like this is sort of Schrodinger's Brexit. We don't know what's in the box. We don't know what's going to come out, whether it's going to be a hard Brexit or soft Brexit. We don't want to do anything, though, that could inadvertently implicate negatively what can come out of it. So Italy's basically done nothing and is just trying to adopt the role a benign arbitrator with the various other uh, regulators. So what are some issues that companies are, are seeing in Italy? One issue is we, for years we've been telling people that uh, continuing to do new business in Italy, it might make sense to transfer activities from the branch of a UK institution to a branch of a continental European institution so that no matter what happens, you're set post-Brexit. Um, many of them have done that, but they said, what do we do with the ongoing activity with the UK branches? Uh, and it's become problematic because they're finding out that for a number of reasons, including tax reasons, it's difficult to transfer the ongoing business over to the uh, new um, branch of the EU entity um, on a cost-effective basis. So some one of the some of the questions we're having now is what do we do? Can we subsequently post Brexit have authorization for these branches? And the answer is we need an MOU between the Italian regulator um, and and the FCA. Um, 
which an MOU normally would take up to two years, but apparently Brexit uh, Consob uh, has announced in line with uh, with ESMA that um, an MOU has already been prepared. So that may hasten things up, um, and we'll follow that closely. Another issue that's been coming out is people have been asking about, well, if we no longer have a passport into Italy, how about we work on a reverse solicitation basis? Now, Italy has traditionally had one of the more restrictive reverse solicitation approaches in continental Europe. Uh, that is unlikely to change post-Brexit. I mean, in, in Italy, the reverse solution principle was not even codified until MIFID II. So it's not really a good tool if you're looking on that as a solution post-Brexit. And we're talking with a, a huge number of clients about how far they can push this. Um, and whereas in the old regime, uh, perhaps the rules on reversal of station were more honored in the breach than the observance, um, we're not entirely sure that's going to be uh, applicable and uh, a viable solution going forward. So back to you, Susan. Jeff, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're now going to go back towards the heart of the debate, so to Brussels, and, and ask Chris uh, Thomas um, to share uh, a view from the perspective of, of Brussels and the European Commission. Chris, over to you. Okay, well, I may echo some of the earlier words of Hugo Parman and Andrew Eaton, uh, but in terms of uh, where, where the EU-level authorities are, of course, we had the recent uh, summit at which uh, Brexit played the very large role of a speech by Mrs. May, not even at the dinner, but in a room next door to the dinner before the EU27 heads of government uh, went in and enjoyed themselves. Um, the official conclusions from the Council have a great deal to say about uh, migration and internal security. I was looking for Brexit and I thought I would get it in the final section on external relations. And those listening from the UK will know all about uh, what happened at Salzburg. And indeed, under external relations, there's a paragraph saying, following the informal leaders' discussion at Salzburg, sounds interesting, the European Council welcomes the holding of the first summit between the EU member states and the League of Arab States, hosted by Egypt in February 2019. Uh, so that's what the EU27 remembers of Salzburg, uh, its importance for relations with the uh, League of Arab States. In terms of preparedness at EU level, the European Commission has issued a very large number of preparedness notices. There are 75 of them, um, and they range from topics like e-commerce, network security, electronic communications, e-signatures, geo-blocking, copyright, energy markets, import and export licenses, waste, asset management, public procurement, company law, data protection, you name it, it's all there. And moreover, there have been a variety of notices issued by the EU agencies like the European Chemicals Agency, uh, the Medicines Agency, of course, the European Banking Authority, uh, ESMA, the European Securities and Markets Authority, 
uh, and the single su supervisory mechanism, there's a lot of notices. Uh, and it's actually very interesting to compare those notices uh, as between the UK and the EU. Because there is a distinct difference in tone and uh, degrees of optimism. So I, I took for us to look at uh, two. One, the air transport notices issued by the UK and the EU. So here's a, here's a quote from the UK one. Uh, in this scenario, the UK would envisage granting permission to EU airlines to continue to operate. We would expect EU countries to reciprocate in turn. It would not be in the interest of any EU country or the UK to restrict the choice of destinations that could be served, though. If such permissions are not granted, there could be disruption to some flights. So that's the UK notice. And here is the EU notice where the, the underlying analysis is, is pretty similar, but this is what they have to say. Air carriers of the United Kingdom will no longer enjoy traffic rights under any air transport agreement to which the Union is a party, be it to or from the territory of the United Kingdom, be it to or from the territory of any of the EU member states. That's it. And to give you another example, banking services. So, the UK notice. One key example of this is the government's commitment to introduce a temporary permissions regime that will allow EA firms currently passporting into the UK to continue operating in the UK for up to three years after exit, etc., etc. Similar temporary regimes will be provided for EA electronic money and payment institutions, and we go on. Uh, the, U the EU notice says simply, UK entities providing banking and payment services as well as e-money issuing, will no longer benefit from the authorization to provide these services and activities in the Union. They will lose the so-called EU passport and will be treated as third country entities with regard to their possibility to establish branches. Um, Sebastien was talking about contractual continuity a moment ago, and there's, uh, there's, a notice, there's reference to that in the banking services uh, notices. The UK says, the government has also committed to legislation alongside this, if necessary, to ensure that contractual obligations such as insurance contracts between EA firms and UK-based customers that are not covered by the temporary permissions regime can continue to be met. Here speaks the European Commission. Contract continuity for relationships between parties established in the Union and in the United Kingdom will be affected by the loss of the single passport as this will impair the ability of UK-based entities to continue performing certain obligations and activities and ensure service continuity with regard to contracts concluded before the withdrawal date. So those notices, as I said, there's a lot of them, but there's a big difference in tone. There are a few legislative initiatives, six, um, two of them are about moving EU agencies out of the UK. Others deal with such massively important issues as ship inspection and apportionment of tariff rate quotas and the realignment of the North Sea Mediterranean Cor Coronel Net Core Network Corridor. 
apparently in November the Commission will propose um, legislation on the visa status of UK nationals and there will be uh, a number of European Commission delegated and implementing acts before the end of the year. But you will get the the impression, uh, as I said, that just in terms of where the priorities are, certainly not as high as they are in the UK. Uh, so that's it. that's it from Brussels. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, so that um, ends the uh, tour of the um, EU member states and, and Brussels as well. Just to finish off, we're going to shine the spotlight on um, data protection. Um, so Hannah, would you like to, to share your thoughts with everyone, please? Thank you, Susan. Um, so despite the fact that we've only just got a new European data protection law in the form of the GDPR, data protection in both the UK and the EU will still be affected by Brexit. So first up, what happens in the UK to the GDPR when the UK leaves the EU? Um, easy answer is it stays. The EU Withdrawal Act will incorporate the GDPR into UK law and it will continue to sit alongside the UK's new Data Protection Act. So no immediate changes in data protection standards in the UK. I'm sure that many of you will be aware that the GDPR restricts the transfer of personal data from the EU to destinations outside the EU. These non-European countries are referred to as third countries in the GDPR. On Brexit, and once the UK leaves the EU, the UK will become a third country. While the UK's Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport has issued guidance confirming that the transfer of personal data from the UK to the EU can Brexit, this may not be the case for the transfer of personal data Carry on. <laughs> it's not, not, not often that data protection is interrupted by jazz. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, Department for Culture, Media and Sport in the UK has confirmed that data transfers from the UK can continue to the EU uninterrupted post-Brexit. This means, however, that organisations in the... Sorry. This will not be the case, unfortunately, for data transfers from the EU to the UK. This means that organisations in the EU that transfer personal data to the UK will have to take steps to ensure that those transfers comply with the GDPR's rules on the transfer of personal data to third countries. Under the GDPR, organisations can transfer personal data to those countries outside the EU, which the European Commission has found to offer an adequate level of protection for personal data transferred from the EU. Um, unfortunately, Achieving adequacy is not easy, though um, I struggle most days. <laughs> when considering whether a third country is adequate, the Commission looks at a number of factors, including, and in a nutshell, the robustness of the third country's legal framework, its regulatory enforcement and oversight capabilities, the existence and effectiveness of individuals' rights, and the legal limits on the state's ability to interfere with individuals' privacy. Although the Commission could consider an adequacy finding for the UK, this is not a solution that is likely to be available in the short term. The Commission has been clear that an, any adequacy finding cannot be issued until the UK is a third country, so after Brexit. The process to consider 
and issue inadequacy finding also takes some months, and it is by no means certain that the Commission will in fact find that the UK is adequate. So, what can organisations do to legitimise their transfers of personal data from the EU to the UK instead? Helpfully, we've got a number of solutions available here. Some years ago, the European Commission issued a set of off-the-shelf contractual solutions to enable the transfer of personal data from organisations in the EU to a recipient in a third country. Um, I'm sure lots of you have heard of these. These documents are often referred to as the model clauses or the standard contractual clauses and they remain a valid transfer mechanism under the GDPR. The GDPR also allows the transfer of personal data from the EU to third countries on the basis of binding corporate rules or a certification or code of conduct approved under the GDPR. So what can you be doing to be prepared? As with most things, the type of Brexit arrangement we end up with will have an impact on the steps that organisations will need to take. Given the current uncertainty, however, and in view of shortening timescales, it would be prudent for organisations to think about the impact of a no-deal Brexit on their international data transfers to the UK. For example, in the context of your organisation, consider which entities transfer personal data and to where, and then look at whether you will need to take steps to legitimise the transfer of personal data to the UK, and if so, what transfer mechanisms are going to be most appropriate in your circumstances. And finally, as with everything else, keep an eye on the negotiations. Anna, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so just to finish up for today, um, how can we help? Um, we have a number of Brexit resources. Um, please do visit our dedicated Brexit hub, which you can find at hoganlevels.com forward slash Brexit. It contains all of our latest thinking about the legal issues around Brexit you can also sign up um, for our regular Brexit bulletin email uh, on the Hub by using the button at the top of the page. Um, each, of the, um, each of my colleagues in the various countries who have shared their thoughts with you today will also be holding uh, seminars um, in the next couple of months. So if you're interested in attending one of those um, in France or in Germany or in the Netherlands or Italy or in Brussels, um, the information will be available on the Brexit site or, or drop us an email and we can provide you um, with an invitation. We will be holding further webinars in this Navigating the Negotiations series, so please do look out for further communications. And finally, as always, um, to discuss how Brexit might impact on your own business, how you can best prepare, do get in touch with us by contacting somebody who's presented today, a member of our task force, or by emailing your questions to us at brexit at hoganlevels.com. So it just remains for me to thank each of my colleagues very much uh, for joining me today and for sharing your thoughts. I'm very, very grateful. It's um, been a pretty sobering uh, webinar um, for me. Um, but also I would like to thank all of you, our audience, for attending today. Uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. Thank you.